0: Welcome again, everyone. And uh, we're in a series right now called Little Christ, and we're asking that question What does it actually mean to be a Christian if I looked at the teachings, the heart, the mind of Jesus, and just drew my definitions from that? What would it mean to be a Christ follower? or a disciple of uh, Jesus Christ. Uh, one of my favorite guys to listen to is a guy named Andy Stanley, he's a great teacher. He's brilliant, he's thoughtful. Pretty sure he rips off all my stuff. But I was uh, I was listening to him a couple weeks ago and uh, he was talking about a lady named Anne Rice. Some of you would probably recognize that name. Anne Rice is a very famous author. Uh, probably one of her most famous books that we would know today is The Vampire Diaries. She's wrote a a ton of that kind of stuff. She sold like 90 million books. And uh, Anne Rice said uh, in a book that, in which she was describing her spiritual journey, she said when she was 18 years old, she left the church violently and completely. And at 18, she kind of walked out of the church and she lived the life of an atheist. She wrote all these books, had great success, made a ton of money, all that kind of stuff. Uh, when she was in her mid-50s, she started to look at, she was really fascinated with the Jewish people and how an ancient culture was still practicing itself, even today, all these thousands and thousands of years later. Started looking at the Jewish people, that led her back to uh, kind of through the roots of our faith, which is, comes out of Judaism, caused her to start reading the New Testament As she started reading the New Testament, the second half of the Bible, she got infatuated with Jesus. She was kind of looking at the validity of the Bible. She was asking the hard questions like, why do good people have bad things happen to them? If God's an all-loving God, why is there evil in the world? All those kind of big philosophical questions. And she did something crazy, unheard of. As she studied Jesus in a vacuum and just kind of looked at who Christ was, it changed her life. And she accepted Christ as her savior. She became a Christ follower. She came out in 1998, was very, very strong about that. And she said, this God, this Jesus is big enough to answer all my questions. He's big enough to carry all the mysteries of life that I have. And and I am kind of bought into who Jesus Christ is and went from an atheist to someone who became a, a very devoted follower of Christ. It's a big deal. She was real public about it. About 10, 12 years later then, she made another big public statement. This was in 2010. She came out on Facebook, and she said this. I put the quotes up here on the screen for you. Uh, She said, today, I quit being a Christian. I'm out. I remain committed to Christ as always, but not to being a Christian or being a part of Christianity it's simply impossible for me to belong to such a quarrelsome, hostile, disputious, and deservingly infamous group. My faith in Christ is central to my life. My conversion from a pessimistic atheist lost in a world that I did not understand to an optimistic believer in a universe created and sustained by a loving God is critical to me. But following Christ does not mean following his followers. Christ is infinitely more important than Christianity, and always will be, no matter what Christianity is, has been, or might become. Big, big, big statement. And when many of us hear that for the first time, it it ruffles our feathers a little bit. But when you start pressing in and thinking about what Anne Rice just said, she was saying this, I looked into the scriptures and I found Jesus Christ. I believe and who Jesus is. I believe he died and was buried, and he rose again from the dead. I have asked him for the forgiveness of my sin, and I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead. I am a follower of Jesus Christ and Christ alone, and I thought, I'm putting words in her mouth now, I thought everyone who was a Christian thought that. I thought if you said you were a Christian, that's what you thought. I thought if you said you were a Christian, that you you looked at your risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and you were like, what does he teach? What does he want? How does he love us? I, I thought that was the deal. So I was totally, totally sold out to Christ. And then I started interacting with other people who are Christians, and I found out it doesn't work that way. And they fight with each other, and they're always after each other, and half of them don't even believe the teachings of Jesus, people who are Christians who don't believe that he rose from the dead, people who are Christians who give no authority to the Bible in their life, and I, it gets so confusing, so nuts, and that's where she says, I'm out. I'm out. I don't want, I'm all about Jesus, and I follow him, and I want to follow him, and I love him, but I'm out with this. Christianity thing, whatever this is, I don't understand it, I don't want it, and I actually don't want to be associated with it most of the time. We were talking last weekend about this idea the difference between a Christian and a Christ follower. And if you missed that conversation, I encourage you to get into it because at the base of that, conver- at the, at the base of that conversation, is this frustration. It's the one that Anne Rice is talking about, where, where all of us, Ann Rice would not speak for all of us, but she would voice a frustration that people who are Christ followers would have. When we look at the people around us and say, I say I'm a Christ follower, you say you're a Christ follower, I mean being fully in love and devoted to Jesus, you mean something else, and I cringe at the idea that we would be lumped together because what you represent as being a Christian has almost nothing to do with following Christ. And so last weekend, we started to delineate these two ideas. And we said, well, what is a Christian? What is a little Christ? Where did that idea even come from? And we found out that in the Bible and in the ancient uh, world, in the early church, that the term Christian was a label that someone else put on you. It was not a label that you took yourself. It literally means like Christ or little Christ, a Christian, a Christian. And what it was was this, that the followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus, would so mimic or resemble Jesus that they would get stereotyped. People would look at them and say, man, that, that guy, he's so into Jesus. He's always talking about loving Jesus, and Jesus loves him, and he listens to the teachings of Jesus, and he gets up every morning and kind of asks, what would Jesus do? And they pray to Jesus, and they're just, you know what those guys believe? They actually believe that Jesus rose from the dead and he's God. They're just a bunch of little Christ running around, little Jesuses, and it was a stereotype that people from the culture would put onto Christians because they so resembled Jesus, that that's how they would lump them together, right? Never in the old church or in the Bible did a follower of Jesus take that title on themselves. Jesus never used the word Christian. He never called himself a Christian. He never told us to go make Christians. The disciples never called themselves a Christian, right? So it wasn't a title that you would assume. It was a label that was given to you and it's shifted over time. Christianity now is a subculture It's a self-identifier, it's a belief system. So we would say things like, are you a Muslim? No, are you Jewish? No, are you a Hindu? No, what are you? Well, I'm a Christian. And what we mean by that is I'm not these other things. We don't necessarily mean that I'm a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ, it just means I'm not these other things. Same thing, like I live in a Christian culture, well, what does that mean? That means that we kind of pray to a heavenly father and pray in the name of the Lord instead of the name of Allah. That means that most people go to church and like a, a Protestant or a Catholic church as opposed to a mosque or a synagogue. A Christianized culture, there's music and there's bookstores and there's bumper stickers and there's Christian tattoos and breath mints and the whole nine yards, right? And so that's, that's what that means. Jesus never refers to this. Jesus never uses the word Christian. He never throws out a a term that would broadly identify people. Jesus uses a very different concept. And what Jesus says is, I'm calling you to be my disciples. And disciple is a very different idea. A disciple in the ancient world, and even today, is the idea of this. A disciple was one who loved, followed, and was fully devoted to their master. A disciple looked at their master and said, I want to so own the teachings and the thought and the heart and the ideas of my master that I would be identified with him. I want to be mistaken for him. I want to become my master. So Jesus says, I'm calling you to be my disciples. And so Then he says to the church, the great mission statement of the church is, I want you to go into all the world, preach the gospel and make disciples, not make Christians, make disciples. I want you to help other people know who I am so they can love me, follow me, and be fully devoted to me as well. And it's that delineation, it's at that point that you start to really sympathize with the frustrations that Ann Rice is talking about. Because if you signed up to be a disciple you, you signed up to be all in. God hears everything that I am and everything that I have and I wanna know you and I, I, wanna, I wanna download every aspect of who you are, your love for me, your grace, your truth, the whole nine yards. I, I am a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. That's a very different sign up than, yeah, I'm not, you know, I'm not a Hindu. Or yeah, I live in a, I, live in a, I celebrate Christmas and Easter. I live in a Chris, uh, Christian culture. So Anne Rice kind of discovered this, kind of looked into it, and she's kind of voicing for some of us a a frustration that many of us would have. Many, if not most, if not all, followers of Jesus Christ's disciples have cringed along the way when we get lumped in with people who would simply call themselves Christians. So when Kanye West prays in the name of Jesus before a concert in which he goes out and sings about horrible things and degrades women, all this kind of stuff, we would cringe. We'd be like, eh, don't use the name of Jesus and don't lump me in as a, as a Christian. Plus, it's Kanye West. I mean, you know, it's like, I don't want to be tied to that. We would tense up with it. Uh, when Westboro Baptist Church pickets a fallen soldier's funeral and holds up signs that says God hates homosexuals, we cringe and we'd be like, I don't want to be tied into that. I'm not going to pick at anything. I don't hate gay people. What, what, are we, what are we talking about here? God doesn't hate people like that. It's, and we would, we would cringe. We would say, I don't want to be associated with that, right? You have friends at church. And, and when you go out on Facebook or Twitter or Snapchat or wherever your social media platform is, and you make, which by the way, the most public statement you will ever make, right? Most people's biggest audience in life is their social media. So when you go make the most public statement you ever make, and you read your friends posting, you're like, man, I can't believe that they just posted that. I can't believe they were like, the president is an idiot. My teacher's a moron. though these are my favorite. To the lady in Target. I (laughs) mean, it's like, oh, you got her. You got her. You have affected her soul, right? And so it's, (laughs) See, we, we would cringe. We'd be like, ah, I don't want to, and, and, and Jesus loves you. It's like, ah, right? We would cringe at that, and you start to understand that frustration. Because many sign up to be a Christian. It's a self-identifier. I, I say if I'm a Christian or not. Few would sign up to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ. And it's Jesus himself who delineates between those two things. So throughout history, this is the case. By the way, this is not, it's not like a modern thing or the problem with the church today. This has always been the case. Throughout history, there's always been people. There always will be people. There are people today who will take the name of Christ, who will abuse it, who will manipulate with it, who, who will seek power over it. The, the organized church has done that over time. Individuals have done that over time. It's nothing new. But is it Christ? See, that's the question. What people are gonna do in the name of Jesus, nobody can stop them because being a Christian is something you call yourself. But for a follower of Jesus Christ, what does that even mean? What am I signing up for? What's at the root of what God is calling me to when he calls me or he calls you to be His disciple. So when you see Anne Rice bump into that and she says, I quit, I'm like, "Eh, I don't quit, but kind of, I don't want to be tied into it. And you look at Jesus and the fact is Jesus never asked for that. He never asked for a subculture. He never asked for a religious system. He asked his followers to be and to make disciples. So what is, what is at the core of a disciple? If I was signing up to be a disciple and I was looking back at Jesus's words and I was looking at what he was trying to teach us and understand that, at the very heart of what that call is, what is he looking for? The very foundation, at the very core, if you boil it down to one thing, Jesus is called to discipleship has a radical idea implemented into it. It's kind of woven into it. This idea was an idea that Jesus brought It's an idea that is unique to him then and even today. It's a radical, kind of earth-shaking, almost obnoxious idea that Jesus kind of brought to bear and started to teach in a big, big way. This idea was so radical and so nuts, this idea that's at the foundation of being a follower of Jesus Christ, that the religious establishment of the day feared it. They absolutely feared it because they realized if this idea takes root, if what Jesus is saying actually takes root, we're going to lose our ability to control and manipulate people. It's going to strip away our power where people no longer have to come to us as an establishment for the forgiveness of their sin and us as an establishment for the health of their family. And it's going to ruin all of that. So they fought against it to the point that they wanted Jesus to be crucified. The Roman government, which was the government Jesus was on earth under and the superpower of its day also feared it because they realized, man, if that idea gets root, if people really start buying into that, we're going to lose our ability to intimidate and control people. We're gonna, it's going to throw off the social order. It's going to ruin the class system that the Romans were so known for. And it's going to be weird. It'll be crazy stuff like slaves and kings will be equal in people's eyes. We can't actually let this idea take root. It was such a crazy idea, even to Jesus' disciples that were kind of on the planet with him, the, the, the first set, they were so a little bit perplexed and confused by this idea that when Jesus went to implement it fully, they tried to stop him from doing it. They realized, man, if this, if this actually takes root, it's gonna shake up our lives, it's gonna shake up his life, and it's gonna cause this whole follow Jesus thing to play out different than we thought it was gonna play out. It was such a radical idea at its very core that when Jesus did follow through with it, the fears of the religious establishment actually came true, and the fears of the Roman government actually came true, and it did erode all of their power and influence and control of people. It was a crazy idea. It's unique to Christianity, it's unique to Christ, and it's at the very, very core of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Okay, you ready for it? Let me show it to you. This is what Jesus says. This is the foundation of what he wants for his disciples. John 13, 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The radical idea, the unbelievable idea, the obnoxious idea is that we should love God and love each other crazy, right? Right? Right. I know. And you're like that that's it. Yep, that's it. Nuts. So we're supposed to be nice and be polite to our mom and not kick our sister and be good little boys and girls. That's what you mean? Nope. I'm not talking about being a wimp. Kick your sister. I'm talking about <laughs> love. And love in the way that Christ demonstrated it to us. I love this quote. I don't know who did it, but I love it. Someone said this: "If you want to know what Jesus means by what Jesus says, you have to look at what Jesus did." Isn't that a great quote: "If you want to know what Jesus means by what Jesus says, you have to look at what Jesus did. And the reason why the word love does not sound earth-shattering to our Western ear is because of the way that we interpret it. When we hear the word love, and I don't mean any offense by anything about to it's just the way it is, we hear it in a feminine way. So when we hear the word love, we think of our mom. We think of our grandma. We think of a pacifist. We think of a, of, a, of a hippie, a love child, right? That's how we would hear the word love. And when you look at a lot of the presentations of Jesus and his love in our culture, that's the way that Jesus has been presented in our modern culture. It's that I, Jesus loves you and we hear it in a feminine way. So we'll see images like this, right? When we think about Jesus's love, we see things like this. There's Jesus. It's like, I'm Jesus.
1: I have flip-flops
0: on, right? Come up to here it is, I'm Jesus, I will help you hit a curveball because an ancient Middle Eastern Jew looks like that and he's gonna care about baseball, right? I'm Jesus, give me your small teddy bear and I will give you a big one. And that, that's, the, that's the way that we tend to think about Jesus loving us. Jesus loving us is,
1: come to heaven, see my flowers, walk up the stairs, right? Right? Jesus loves children, Jesus loves you, right? Jesus will
0: give you what you want, it's not in the Bible, ignore the television, right? (laughs) But that's the way that we hear it. We hear it in a feminine way. So when we hear love as a radical idea that destabilized a religious establishment and eroded the power of a government... It it seems like dumb to us. But if you wanna understand what Jesus meant by what Jesus said, you have to look at what Jesus did. Jesus would clarify his definitions through his life example. So in John chapter 13, Jesus is having the first communion with his disciples. He's there in the upper room. He takes the bread, he breaks it, he takes the wine, he pours it, he washes his disciples' feet. And the Bible says that what Jesus was about ready to do was he was about ready to demonstrate the full extent of his love. And what that was talking about was the cross. Jesus's love would look more like these images. It is the the suffering of Christ. It is the brutality of the passion of Christ. It is the cross itself. When Jesus was talking about love, he wasn't talking about being nice and being polite and not kicking your sister. When Jesus was talking about love, he was talking about sacrificial love. He was talking about an all-in love. He was talking about a selfless love. He was talking about a determined love. The Bible says when Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, he set his face like flint. He determined to himself that he was going to suffer and he was going to die and he did it on purpose. He says this in John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18, he says his words, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one's taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my father. When Jesus was talking about love, he was talking about his willingness to go all in for people that he did not know, for people who hated him, for people who were not asking him to live this way, but in his determination, he did it. His love does not look like Jesus playing soccer with your five-year-old. The images of love that Jesus, that would portray Jesus more clearly would be the firefighters going up the stairs on 9-11 as the buildings were coming down on them. It would be the Navy SEALs going and rescuing the American hostage. It would be the Marine falling on the grenade for the lives of his buddy. It's a selflessness. There's no reason for me to be here. I don't have to do this. I signed up to do it Because I love you. And Jesus looks at his disciples and says, listen, at the core of discipleship, at the very foundation, I am not asking you to sign up to go to church. I'm not asking you to sign up to be a nice person. I'm not asking you to quit smoking, drinking, chewing, dating girls who do cheer for Michigan. I'm not asking for behavioral modification. I'm asking for you to love as you have been loved by me. People will look at you loving like that, and they will know that you're my disciples. Because nobody does that. Nobody lays their life down like that. Nobody goes after people who hate them and loves them. But I did. And when you love the way that you've been loved, that love will be the mark of my disciples. It's not a belief system. It's not a religious practice. Not, not the beginning. It is you loving me, me loving you, and that spilling out into this weird, countercultural, odd passion to give your life to others. It's fascinating what the Apostle John says about this. And you can flip in your Bibles there to John chapter 4. John chapter 4 is page 856 in those Bibles in the chairs. And if you want to use your phone, we use the U version app. So here's John. Now let's just frame this up a little bit. The Apostle John is at the very end of his life when he writes the book of 1 John. Okay. So to, to our knowledge, the Apostle John was the only apostle who died of natural causes to actually live like a, what we would think of as a full life and then died. All the other apostles and disciples would have been martyred in some way. So here's John at the end of a lifetime of following Jesus. Probably met Jesus when he was a late teenager, early 20s kind of a thing. 17 to 22, we'll call it like that. Right, somewhere in there, he's a lifetime of following Jesus, knows Jesus very well. He was Jesus' best friend while john was on the or jesus was on the cross he looked at john and said john will you take care of my mom that's how close they were so the apostle john took care of mary the mother of jesus until she died the apostle john has lived this long life and by this point in his life he has seen many of his friends die for the name of Christ because they are disciples. They love, they follow, they're fully devoted. And even in the face of death, they would not denounce. They would not yield their love for God. So like his friend James, tradition says, was thrown off the top of the temple to his death. His friend, friend Paul, we know, was beheaded. His friend Peter was crucified. Tradition says he was crucified upside down because he wouldn't be crucified in the same way that Jesus was. Like this has all happened. Imagine the trauma of losing one friend, let alone all of your friends. And by this time in the, the life of John, the persecution that the Bible talks about had broken out in Jerusalem. So many people now are losing their life because the... Religious establishment and the Roman government realize if this takes hold, we're in trouble, right? If people start loving each other and that's the central command, then they don't have to come to us and pay their taxes in order to get their sins forgiven. How are we going get to get these people to do what we want them to do? If people start loving each other and that's a central command, as a government, We're going to throw you in jail. We're going to beat you. We're going to kill you. And they're not afraid to die. How are we supposed to intimidate these people? Because we can't stop, we can stop them from meeting. We can't stop them from loving each other and loving God. So here's John, a lifetime of persecution, a lifetime of losing friends, a lifetime of following Jesus, right? John was a very good person that very bad things happened to. He was in jail. He was beaten, all kinds of stuff like that. He would not recant or walk away from Christ. And so he's near the end of his life. And he's summarizing to the early church who's kind of lived through all this. People who have said, I want to be a follower of Jesus Christ. That's what a church is. It's the collective group of individual followers of Jesus Christ. Jesus implemented the church. So it existed then, he's writing to them. He said, hey, I knew the guy, I walked with the guy, I saw the guy, I was there the whole nine yards. I'm probably the last, if not one of the last originals left. Let me sum up what Jesus wants from you and me. Verse seven, chapter four, 1 John. Dear friends, let us love one another. Let's love one another. For love comes from God. Isn't that fascinating? Let us love one another. The thing that God gives us that's unique to us, that's unique about a follower of Jesus Christ, that no one else who practices a religion, no one else who participates in a subculture has, it's a spiritual thing that God gives to us that we receive from Him, is this it is our love. Not a set of rules not a holy book, not a religious structure. God loves us and puts that love into us. Look at it. Dear friends, let us love one another. Love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Everyone who loves has been born. That word born, the Greek word, you can also interpret it, or we probably, if we were doing it super cleanly, we would interpret it, Fathered. Everyone who loves has been fathered by God. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ and you've asked for the forgiveness of your sin and you have received it and the Holy Spirit has indwelt you, then you have been spiritually fathered by God. And at the very base of the DNA that God puts in you as he fathers you is love. Let's love one another because everyone who loves has been fathered by God and knows God you will have love, love will define you. You'll have a supernatural love, a powerful love, an unyielding love, a weird love, a love in which you'll love your enemies, a love in which you'll submit to each other, a love in which you'll put other people's interests above your own, a love in which you'll forgive as you've been forgiven, a love that causes you to release all bitterness, angerness, brawling, malice, and slander. This weird love that comes from a God who loves you and now empowers you to love as you've been loved. And when you love like that, well, of course people will know you're my disciples because that comes from God. And it goes on. This is the hard part. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. It's a very powerful sentence. If you don't love, then you don't know God because God is love, and he would have fathered that into all of his spiritual children. But I'm a Christian. Well, who said? Why well, self-identified? Wait a minute now. Why are you a Christian? Well, I'm I'm not something else. Okay. Why well, know the Bible? Alright? I go to church. Okay. I have certain political point of views. All right, I live by a certain set of rules. I live a moralistic life. Okay, do you love people? Why well,
1: they all them gays? They ought to fry.
0: Do you do you love people? I love my country. What about uh, your enemies, like the Iranians?
1: Yeah, we ought to nuke
0: them. What? Whoever doesn't have love doesn't know God because God is love. I can't be a follower of Jesus Christ and be untransformed or even undefined by the love that he fathered in me. Whoever does not know, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. You cannot separate the two despite whatever label you have assigned to yourself. He goes on. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. And sent his son as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. When we look at the mag- the magnitude of what God did for us, it's kind of easy to love God. It's not that we love God. That's like we almost can't help ourselves. It's that he did this for us. We hated him. We didn't care about him. We didn't know him. And he set his face like flint and went to the cross on purpose. That he did it for us, verse 10, this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us, sent his Son to an sacrifice, verse 11, dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one's ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. We love each other, no one's ever seen God, but when they see his disciples, who love him, who follow him, or who are completely devoted to him, when they see people obsessed with Jesus, when they see people who act like, talk like, think like, love like, are motivated like Jesus, when they see people who have, been, have love fathered in them so that love exudes from their life, they love their enemies, they, they love each other, they love a stranger, they love people across the world, they're passionate and eager and determined to do that. Nobody's ever seen God, but when they see that, they're gonna associate that with Christ because that's how my disciples are known. Now, the Bible says that this kind of love, this radical love, does some radical things because it cannot be controlled, right? You ever notice that? When an authoritarian government comes in, Pol Pot or the Stalin or the communists and the Chinese or whoever, just fill in your mind. The first thing they'll do is try to stomp out religion and they'll shut down the churches and they'll bulldoze the churches and they'll burn the Bible and they actually think that that's gonna stop it. And when they get a little deeper, they realize, ah, we, we can stop religion. We cannot stop people from loving each other. They can't do it. And they realize, man, if that takes hold, that you love God more than anything else, that you love each other more than your very life, that you would lay your life down even for an enemy, if that takes hold, that is going to draw people ready to the one who implemented the radical idea. And if they start following Jesus instead of fearing us, we're in trouble because they'll start doing whatever Christ says instead of what we say. And if they start loving people like that, that's going to pick up steam like crazy. Now, what the Bible says is this that when we love like that, when disciples of Jesus love like that, this is what happens. The Bible uses this word it draws people in. Another phrase the Bible uses it wins people over. It's crazy, crazy, crazy. And it draws them not to a person, that's a religion, not to a philosophy, that's more of a government or nationalism, but to the Lord and risen Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who implemented the thought. And that's what drew you. That's what you're excited about. That's what I'm excited about. It's not religion. People leave religion, but nobody leaves this love. Nobody ever stomped out of the church saying, man, church people, I I was having
1: a hard time and they prayed for me and helped me and bought me coffee and paid my bills. I'm never going back there. It's never happened in the history of the world. Nobody ever has been like, I fell into sin and I was living immorally and they loved me and were patient with me and explained it to me and then I changed my life and they were all thrilled and happy and even when I didn't agree with them, they still loved me. I'll never be, I'm an atheist. That never happened. No kid has ever looked and said, my mom and dad... They just loved each other. They submitted to each other. They were prayed together. They had joy and peace and they were committed to us above everything else. I do not want a marriage like that. Those those
0: words have never been spoken in the history of the world, right? Why? Because love draws. Wimpiness pushes away. But sacrificial... Strong, courageous love draws. And Jesus, if you want to know what Jesus means by what Jesus says, watch what he did. I'm going to show you the full extent of my love. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. And I have the authority to do this, I am doing it by my own initiative. When the alarm went off, I grabbed my gear and I ran into the building. Nobody forced me to do that. Love. As a follower of Jesus Christ, it's the foundation that Christ has called us to, to receive that love from him and then to give that love to all That come to be favorite passage in the Bible is in Matthew 22. It's also reiterated again in Mark guy comes up to Jesus says, put it all in a nutshell for me. I got to nail this thing down. What's the greatest commandment? Jesus says, here it is. Ready? The greatest commandment. Number one thing on the to do list, the primary function, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself All the law and all the prophets, all the rules, all the religion, all the Bible, all the teaching hang on that. You pull love out, the Bible doesn't make sense. You pull love out, Jesus is a cult leader. You pull love out, the church is trying to control people. You pull love out, it's us against them. You put love in, and all of a sudden, the Bible is the story of the heart and mind of God, passionately seeking to redeem people, to be with them. You put love in, all of a sudden, the church is drawing people to Jesus, not to itself. And we come together corporately to love each other and then to go love the world because it's not us against them, it's us for them. See, you put love in, And Christianity and following Jesus isn't some weird cult. All of a sudden you put love in, it's a place of hope. If my life is a mess, I know those people, even if they don't agree with me, will love me. Everything hangs. My love for God, downloading his love for me. Because he fathered love in me, I love the people around me. It's radical. It's crazy. It's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Here's two thoughts as we close this. First one's a question. I think when we have a conversation like this, we kind of have to ask ourselves is that me? Would Pete, is my life hallmarked by love? would somebody accuse me of being a little Christ? When they think of their interactions with me and they think of my willingness to be patient and to sacrifice and to give and, and, and my, my desire, we're all gonna do it imperfectly because we're all human beings, we're all gonna screw it up, right? But my, my kind of desire, my passion, the quickness in which I will apologize, I forget, all that kind of, when people think of love, If I am a follower of Jesus, am I known for it? It's a big question. And if I'm not known for it, what does that mean? I think corporately, then, as a church, we would ask that same question, and then we would look and say, now, wait a minute. Not only does God give us a directive, God only tells us what to do because he loves us. He's also given us this enormous opportunity. See, a a follower of Jesus is not going to convince a world that doesn't love Jesus to love Jesus with sophisticated arguments and philosophies. It's never going to work. A follower of Jesus is gonna prove the existence of God by the transformation of our own lives. We have an enormous opportunity to move into a culture that does not know, appreciate, or follow Jesus, not with picket signs and big arguments, but with the power of our lives and our willingness to love. And as an individual... As a corporate group, as a church, that's our hallmark. My biggest fear is that is that that would be squandered. That we would fill ourselves up with information and not empty ourselves of love and passion. So that's where we need to sit on that and kind of ruminate with that on an individual level, a corporate level, and then next weekend we're going to continue this conversation. And we're going to talk about how does this start to intersect with the people around us, the culture around us, from our, our wives, our kids, our husbands, our best friend to our worst enemies, right? And, and what does Jesus say, and how does that work, and what is the power of living out that radical idea to kind of bring about change and affect those around us? What do this, how do the disciples of Jesus live in love? All right. Let me pray for us. The band will come out. And we'll continue our service. Jesus, we do love you. Thank you for loving us. God, help us to download the depth of your love for us. Lord, I, I know I struggle with that. Lord, I, I I take it for granted. It's hard for me to understand. I want to make it conditional, all these ways that I taint kind of the purity and the intensity of your love for me. So God, help me to remember and to see my need and then to ask and receive from you the depth of who you are and how you love me. I ask that for all of us, God. Whether we want to be a a brighter light and a brighter voice or whether we would ask the question, Maybe we think of ourselves as a Christian, but not a disciple. Wherever we're at in that spectrum, draw close to us and work deeply in our heart. So thank you, God, for your clarity on this. Help us as we love you and pursue this and love those around us. It's in your name we pray, Jesus.